Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of recessions. That means we'll delve into past recessions, what caused them, what resolved them, and what we can learn from them. We'll also explore what's different about our current economic situation in 2020. And we'll provide tips for how to position yourself financially so your assets are safeguarded against the next recession. But first, Justin, perhaps we can start by defining recession. Yeah, so the standard definition of a recession is two quarters back to back with declining GDP. And then that kind of begs the question, well, what's GDP? And GDP is really some number that tries to quantify how much output is being generated by the country as a whole. And if the uh, production of the country as a whole is declining, that means people are not spending as much. And they're kind of holding on to their money. And when there's less demand for products, then people or then the companies respond by not producing as much. And that just kind of leads to this vicious cycle. So it starts in these little tight pockets, maybe, but then that whole behavior spreads across, you know, the country and then leads to the declining GDP. And yeah, that's kind of the the basics of a recession. Yeah, yeah. GDP is one important leading indicator for recessions. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there are a number of other indicators now. And, you Mm -hmm. know, we were talking a little bit before this call that macroeconomics is one of those areas where it's really hard to know how much of it is actually useful and how much of it is economists just, you know, sort of (laughs) using different tactics that, writing papers right because so much <laughs> of a recession is psychological also it's like if people think times are bad and they'll continue to be bad then mm-hmm. that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy so mm-hmm. maybe it's good for us just to go through what experts consider the most important indicators for a recession and that'll help us predict when we believe the next recession is likely to occur so mm-hmm. let's start with gdp because we use that in our definition so Right now, the latest data we have for 2019, the GDP growth rate is 2.3%, meaning our output as a nation is increasing by 2.3%. Now, that's mm-hmm. like, it's okay. It's not great, but it's also not terrible. So Especially for such a mature economy, too. Right. So for reference, um, you know, after the 2008 crash, we were at negative 2.5% GDP. So that's a 5% spread between where we are now and what happened after 2008. Mm -hmm. And it was not quite as bad after the dot com crash in 1999, 2000, 2001. At that point, GDP was 1%. So it was still positive, it was still growing, it's just the economy was only growing by 1% compared to right now, it's growing by 2.3%. So if we're only looking at GDP as an indicator, it's sort of like the jury's out. We can't really say whether or not a recession is going to occur. So let's look at some of the other indicators. So this next one, I'm sure because you have a hedge fund, Justin, and this is like something that oftentimes gets included in algorithms as a way to measure the market the yield curve is a really important indicator as well. And essentially what the yield curve is, is it measures the bond market 
And the yield curve is the spread between the yields you'll get for a long-term bond and the yield you'll get for a short-term bond. So in March of 2019, the yield curve inverted and everyone started freaking out in the economics community because they're like, oh my God, the yield curve has inverted. That means that it's likely there will be a recession because the yield curve inverting over a long period of time has predicted every recession in the last 50 years. Now, it's worth noting that even though the yield curve inverted in March of 2019, it's no longer inverted. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a bad indicator, but it's not, it's not the same as we've seen in past recessions where it's inverted for months and months and months, and then that pretty much necessitates a recession just based on historical data. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe quickly we'll just explain like, what this actually means for consumers, like what does it mean to invert a yield curve? So basically, and maybe you, if do you want to explain it or basically yeah, I I'll, mean, I'll give a shot at it and yeah. then tell me if, I, yeah. if I'm wrong. Cause you, you probably know more about this than I do. So from my understanding, an inverted yield curve is basically where people think, Hmm, economic times look like they're going to be hard in the short term. So I'm going to invest in long-term bonds instead because I think, you know, long term, the U.S. economy is going to be fine, but I'm not as confident in the next five or 10 years that the economy is going mm-hmm. to be great. So rather than invest in short term bonds, you know, two year bonds or 10 month or whatever they are, and then mm-hmm. you would have to reinvest it, you know, two years or 10 months later, instead of doing that, I'm just going to invest in long term bonds, like 10 year bonds. And so when people when enough people have this mentality where I'd rather invest in the long term because I'm not that confident that the short term is going to be economically mm-hmm. profitable, then the yield curve inverts and you actually get a higher yield on short term bonds than you would on long term bonds. So mm-hmm. that's what's meant by an inverted yield curve. And it's essentially just not having as much confidence in the economy in the short term as you do in the long term. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much um, what I would how I would describe it. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about this because ultimately, all, and a lot of this also boils down to interest rates. Like, what is the Fed doing with all of the interest rates? And maybe people have heard how um, the Fed is like reducing rates and reducing rates. And if people think that the inc- that there's an increase in rates coming, then stock market prices will plummet a little bit based on, you know, the speculation of what they think is going to happen. And the reason for that is when they think that it's going to be more expensive to borrow in the future, people start to constrict again and start saving their money rather than spending their money. And like, like we were talking about, spending is literally the driver of everything. It's the driver of the economy as a whole. And even if GDP is not a perfect measure and only like partially quantifies, you know, the supply of, you know, what's being generated, spending is ultimately what happens. And it's all about supply and demand at like the most basic level. That's what all of this is. Right. And part of why some people like Ray Dalio our concern is because we've kept the interest rate so low, so we get people to borrow money and spend and invest in their companies, and that helps the stock market do well. But yeah. 
by lower lowering our interest rate is one of our only tools in our toolbox once a recession does occur. So and, we're we're kind of making the situation worse by having low interest rates for so long because then if a recession does occur, it's not like we can lower them anymore because we've already got them, you know, almost to zero. So there is a concern that even though the current policy of low interest rates is good for the economy right now, it may be making the future recession worse if and when it does occur in the near future. Yeah, that's a really scary thing to me. And because right now, like you said, the interest rates are at historically low levels. It, like, And they have been for quite a while, but they just keep dropping little by little. I don't know if you've ever had money in like a high yield savings account or something. Um, in the pro probably in the 70s, 80s, 90s, those like CDs and high yield savings accounts would probably return you somewhere around two, two and a half percent. Right now, a CD probably yields 0.2 percent because the interest rates are so low. And what happens when a recession does hit? If that's one of the biggest tools that the Fed has to stimulate the, the economy again, what are we going to do when that happens? Like all of these, all of these things are pointing towards, you know, I don't want to get into the future scenarios. Well, too well much, not all of them. There are some good indicators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. let's, let's go through all the main indicators and then we'll come to our okay. assessment. Yeah, so, yeah, so it is worrisome when we think about the Treasury spread and what you're sort of getting at with what you were just talking about is that so the Federal Reserve Bank has a recession probability model where they basically use the yield curve, which we just talked about, to predict the likelihood of the next recession. And based on the most recent data we have as of January, 2000, January 6th, 2020, we there appears to be a 40% chance, 30 to 40% chance of a recession occurring in the next one year. This is according to the, the LEI, the, the, uh, or sorry, the Federal Reserve Bank's probability model. Um, you know, just if we look at that one metric, there are other metrics as well. Mm -hmm. So another interesting model that's used to predict recessions is called LEI, a leading economic index. And this mm -hmm. is basically, it uses 10 different data points that have correlated historically with recessions in the past. And it uses that to predict the likelihood of a recession. And now the likelihood of a recession is actually higher than it was just before the 2008 crash and also higher than it was before the dot-com crash. So that also appears to be pointing in the direction of, yes, there will likely be a recession in the future. Now, let's talk about a positive indicator because they're not all negative. So one positive indicator is unemployment. And this is something you'll hear all the time whenever there's talk about, well, is there going to be a recession? You know, are, is Trump's policies, have they actually been good for the economy? And they'll always point to, look, we have record unemployment rates that gets cited all the time. And it's true. It's not a lie. We have unemployment rates that are, you know, like below, like they're like 3% unemployment. And when I was, you know, in my economics class in college, they teach you that 5% is about the level where you want to be because you're always going to have some percentage of people that are switching jobs, 
for, so you have mm -hmm. some dynamism in the economy. Some people leave to go to a better company. They start their own company. People are moving around. So the fact mm -hmm. that we're under that threshold of 3% is really good indicator, sort of no matter how you slice it. So mm -hmm. that is an argument that, well, maybe there won't be a recession in the near future, or if there is, maybe it won't be as bad as we think. Mm -hmm. The problem I see with that is what are the jobs that are being filled? Is it, are, you know, are these all bullshit jobs that could totally be automated away? And in a lot of cases, probably, like a lot of the low wage, low skill jobs could be automated. And that's one of the things we've talked about economically with stuff like UBI. And um, you've also, there's a whole book on bullshit jobs that people are, you know, doing these things that are, and they're basically pencil pushers. You don't need to pay somebody to do them. And I worry that we overweight this unemployment number because of the actual jobs. Like they're not providing that much value to the economy. They're just kind of jobs and they're, it's like a right. checkbox. That doesn't I think really it was matter. like AOC who said, of course the unemployment rate is low. Everyone needs at least two jobs just to make ends meet. It's like, <laughs> so it's like, yeah, like just the fact that people have jobs isn't really telling the full story. You also need mm -hmm. to look at things like income inequality, purchasing power, you know, are people's savings and investments growing over time? Mm -hmm. And once we consider those other aspects, it doesn't look as rosy of a picture. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm looking right now at this graph that shows the share in income after taxes adjusted for inflation for the rich, meaning like the 1%, the middle class mm -hmm. and the poor. And the share of income has just skyrocketed for the rich. So from 1979 to 2018, the rich own 150% what they own in, in 1979. So they've wow. literally taken on an extra 50, an extra half of what they own in 1979 and added it to their wealth by 2018. Whereas wow. the middle class has only had a modest increase of like, you know, 15% since then. Mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's it's better than than uh, nothing, but it's really yeah. not much. And by the way, it's actually lower than it was in, you know, 2008. So it's not like it's continued to grow linearly. It basically like was going up to 2008. And now the middle class, it's actually like not growing as as much as it was in the past. Mm -hmm. And for the poor from 1979, they actually own like 40% less than what they did in 1979 as an aggregate group in the economy. So income inequality is a lot worse than it was. So a lot of times when we take these metrics into account, like GDP and things that just measure the whole nation, it doesn't take into account what the average person is dealing with, with their financial life, given how mm -hmm. few people are in the 1% and obviously how many people are in the 99%. Yeah. So. And that kind of, this is just sort of a side note. I wish that these numbers like GDP or, you know, anything else were represented as a distribution because, mm -hmm. you know, these are just average numbers and they're sort of approximates. And it always seems like, dis at least to me, a distribution is way more clear on what the true nature of, you know, reality is. That's sort of a side note. Total, you know, it doesn't really 
um, add to this, but I'm just if if there's somebody who listens to this and somehow can start quantifying or like writing papers of, you know, how we can <laughs> change these metrics to be more meaningful, I think that would be you know a benefit for the economy as a whole. Um, yeah. But one one thing that I do want to talk about a little bit more is the stock market and valuations yeah. of companies. Let's so one of the things, one of the companies that has really stuck out to me in the past handful of months is Tesla. Mm-hmm. So first of all, Tesla has yet to be profitable, except for I think this last quarter, they might have turned a little bit of a profit. Not and, yet. Well, I don't think yet, but they're projected for the next quarter to be profitable. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, that's maybe that's what it is. But there's their stock price has since let's see i'm gonna pull this up but since um earlier this year or early 2019 let's see in exactly a year ago they were at 312 dollars they kind of plummeted down into the 170 range once they weren't making money and uh elon musk went on to joe rogan's podcast and started you know, he smoked a blunt or whatever, and <laughs> it was it was weird. But then, just two weeks ago, they were at nine hundred dollars, and these these ratios and these valuations are so outrageous these days. And this is this is true for many Silicon Valley companies. There, no one's turning a profit really, and the valuations for venture capitalists and um, private equity firms are ridiculous. Right. And and there's so you're, there's no reason for it to be right. that high. So what you're getting at is the price to earnings ratio, the PE ratio. And for for listeners basically it's like how do you value how much a company is worth? Typically you say okay, well how much money did they make last year? Oh, okay, they made a million dollars and it's a software tech company. Okay, then we'll give them a multiple of you know, 14x or whatever. So we'll value them at 14 million. Like mm-hmm. that, that's an example of like the price to earnings ratio. But in the past, in recent times, the price to earnings ratio has been way higher. Like you said, Tesla hasn't earned a profit. So it's actually like, although it has revenue though, you know, it, it's right. got decent revenue. Because <laughs> so, my, I don't think we should focus too much on Tesla because I actually think I'm actually bullish on Tesla given that, it is like someone tweeted this the other day where they said that there's essentially like three players in the auto industry. It's like Tesla, it's like, you know, Uber, and then it's all the other companies that are all like trying to vie for, or I guess you could put like Google, Waymo, but basically what he's, what the, the point of the tweet was trying to say is that the companies that are really doing automation well are the only companies that are going to succeed in the next evolution of the transportation industry. And because of how much of a lead Tesla has with their autopilot, Mm. they are really well positioned. And other companies that are well positioned would be like, for instance, if Uber figures out their self-driving, they could be a major player. Same thing with Google's Waymo. But all the incumbent automakers like Ford and GM and even Toyota and Hyundai and whatever, they all are playing catch up. 
So it actually may not be crazy to value Tesla as high as we are valuing it, given how far along they are technologically and given that now they can produce Model 3 affordable self-driving vehicles at scale, on target, under budget, and they will mm -hmm. be able to do so for the foreseeable future. So I'm bullish on Tesla. I don't want to make it seem like we're, we're saying Tesla's overvalued because that's still a question that hit, that the future will have to answer for us. But you raise a good point, which is that the stock market has never been higher. It is through the roof. Literally, there has never been this much total valuation in the stock market. And along with that, the price to earnings ratio is much higher. Companies are valued at a much higher multiple on average than they earn in revenue. And a recession comes after the stock market is at an all-time high. It doesn't come when the stock market has been crashing. So you want to think about recessions when the stock market is doing really well, right? So, mm -hmm. and when we look, I have this other graph that I'm looking at right now, which shows the Dow Jones Industrial Average from 1895 to 2015. And the giant crash of 1929 barely registers on this scale. It looks just like a little slight decline. And then it goes way up and you see this massive crash after 2000 and the dot com. And then it goes way up to 2008 and it crashes again after 2008. And then it goes way up and we're right now at another high point, higher than it's ever been. So... Mm -hmm. Based on history, it seems like we are due for a reckoning. We're due for another crash in the stock market. Mm -hmm. The so, one thing about that, though, is like through any growth period, like you're always at an all time high. And I would also say that, like, I don't know what graph it is, but if it's not on a log scale, then when prices were lower, it's just going to seem like the magnitude of those drops were smaller, you know? Right. Um, but but there's just so much more money in circulation now, too. Yeah. Like they're pumping so much money into the economy. And mm -hmm. that's that's like a whole other subtopic we can discuss. But I want to finish out these indicators. So the stock market is worrisome. The yield curve is worrisome. The leading economic index is worrisome. Mm -hmm. The federal bank's recession probability model is worrisome. Unemployment actually seems to be an argument that the economy is doing all right, although there is income inequality, which we discussed. Another interesting indicator is when you look at interest in recessions over time on Google Trends, and this spiked when the yield curve inverted in, in you know, around like August 2019, and then it declined. So we're now at more normal levels. But that just shows that once some indicator shows a recession is coming people are really quick to hop on that and start doing their own research mm -hmm. another positive indicator actually is consumer confidence indexes so this basically measures how confident are consumers in the economy are they still willing to spend their dollars or are they more like hunkering down and you know waiting out the storm and not spending as much so mm -hmm. based on the latest data january 2020 Consumer Confidence Index is very high. It's 99.8%. It only goes up to 100%. So it's very high uh, compared mm -hmm. to the past. So that means that most people, average consumer, is not worried about a recession. Mm -hmm. And then the, the final indicator I'll 
I'll speak about and then we can get to the next subtopic is oil. So every recession in recent history has been accompanied by a rising oil price. Now, the oil price has been declining since 2008. So it was super high in 2008 during that recession. It has been declining on a trend line that's fairly consistently negative since that time. Now, just like how when the stock market is doing really well, that's the time when you want to worry about a recession. When the oil price is really low, that's also when you want to worry about a recession. Because once the recession occurs, oil price goes up. And some people have been talking about that we are at, quote, peak oil, or we're close to peak oil, meaning we may be at the point where we won't be able to grow our oil production beyond this point. Like we're already doing really well with how well we can produce oil and mm -hmm. people are, aren't able to afford that much higher oil prices right now, like the average consumer. So if a recession occurs, you know, oil prices would probably go up. It'd be really tough on some people. And because the world is kind of shifting to electric and clean energy anyways, it's mm -hmm. unlikely that as many companies would invest in new oil uh, ventures like we have in the past it's more likely yeah. that we would that would sort of accelerate the shift to green energy so yeah. that also is an indicator that shows that we may be heading for a recession so i think given all of these indicators now we should talk about the three past recessions that are most relevant to us right now the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis the 2000.com crash and the great depression and uh, say a little bit about what caused each one, what resolved each one, and what we can learn from them. So maybe we go backwards in time and, and start with 2008. What can we say about what caused the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis? Yeah, um, it's, well, okay, so the recession as a whole, it's hard to like pinpoint everything that led to it, but there was a lot of, really weird assets that were being created for and we can talk a little bit about yeah like all of these derivatives that were being created for uh, they were basically chopping up a whole bunch of really risky mortgage mortgages and putting them into one asset right and then and then people and banks were just giving their little stamp of approval on these new assets saying these were you know these were a class, you know, like these were perfect, totally non-risky right. mortgage-backed securities. Yeah, like, these were mortgage-backed securities. What a like, great market! Not risky, name not that. risky at all because you're super well diversified. All of the mortgages that make up this derivative are, you know, they're they're from all different markets. It's totally fine. But everything that made up that so that um, mortgage-backed security was basically just shit like it was just made up and it was or not made up but it was a really risky investment on its own but when you put a whole bunch of super risky things together that doesn't necessarily make it not risky right and and that's essentially what what they were doing and there's there's a lot more to it but that's kind of the basic yeah um, that's a good summary yeah i would yeah. say if we try to transport ourselves to the mindset of 2008 or 2007 just before it's like the economy was booming, the stock market was doing well, real estate prices were going up, 
everyone wants to buy some real estate so they can get a piece of the action and all the banks just want to keep the party going so they are creating new asset classes selling them to investors and it even got to the point where they would sell and they would sell homes and mortgages to people who were even considered ninjas which is they have no income no job so these are people that they just have no real way of to actually pay back their mortgage but because the party was going and everyone just figured that more growth would come and fix the problems of today then mm -hmm. you have all these people getting into mortgages that they can't afford and then like you said the banks basically bundle up all of these subprime mortgages into mortgage-backed securities and they're diversified and they come from all different markets like you said and then they sell them to some naive investors some poor pensioners like the california pension fund and mm -hmm. and and then eventually people go go uh, default on their mortgage because they just simply can't pay the monthly amount that they agreed to mm -hmm. and they're not financially literate and they got sold on something that they shouldn't have been sold on in the first place and so once their mortgages started to default then the whole house of cards started to collapse and it took the u.s government bailing out the big banks in order for us not to have a depression in order for it, for it just to be a recession mm -hmm. so i think that is probably the most insightful recession because a it's the most recent so it's the most relevant for how the modern banking government financial system works mm -hmm. and b it kind of speaks to problems that we haven't really solved like we never really fixed the whole issue of the mortgage-backed security crisis like we've we've put some band-aids here and there but it's not like we've totally stopped selling derivatives or you know have made for more mm -hmm transparent yeah. dealings and increased regulations. We really haven't. And a lot of people nowadays are talking about the subprime student loan crisis, which might be the new subprime mortgage crisis because it's the big, it's the single biggest asset the U.S. government has. And a lot of students may not be able to pay back their student loans if unless they get really good jobs and unless their wages keep increasing and their investments keep returning then it's quite likely they're not going to be able to pay back their student loans. And what happens when the government's single biggest asset class stops being able, stops being as much of an asset as they had calculated on their balance sheet? Well, mm -hmm. then we're less able to pay back our loans to China, which has loaned us a lot of money. And it just, the whole system starts to slow and then maybe even go into a decline. So. Mm -hmm. That, and all of it starts with people reducing their spending as a whole. And what's really annoying, or not really annoying, but one thing to keep in mind is it's good when the rest of the world is spending all of their money because that means the economy is doing well. But you personally, if you want to gain the most freedom, you don't want to spend. You want to keep, you want to sit, save and invest your money a lot of the time well it, it know, depends then, if inflation is rising or or on how quickly inflation is rising because like let's say inflation is rising super fast so a dollar mm -hmm. today is worth like 50 cents a year from now you're going to want to spend money quickly 
because your money, like your savings account is going to be worth half of what it will a year from now than it is today. So when there's a lot of inflation, people want to really spend. And that's kind of why the government always wants some ambient level of inflation. So people keep spending, the economy keeps growing. But if we get into an area of deflation, then you're totally right. That's where everyone's just sort of holding their you know, valuables close to their chest. No one really wants to go out and spend. Everyone just wants to keep their money in the bank because the value of the dollar is actually really strong and that can lead to a, another type of sluggish economy. Um, and we can talk more about like which of those is actually the worst scenario when we get into the mm-hmm. future scenarios because I, I have some thoughts on that. But maybe we talk now briefly about the dot-com crash. So that's the other most relevant crash. And maybe to me, you can it seems like bit. that's just a couple of thoughts. It seems like that's the one that we are most likely to be in right now. At least the one that's most similar to our situation. And that's really because I'm hyper concerned about the valuation of everything in the stock market and particular um, like Silicon Valley is an awesome place. But I also think there's a lot of mania going on right now. The same way that there was tulip mania back in the Netherlands, I think in the 1700s, where people, there was a point in time where people were paying the price of a townhome for a mutated uh, bulb for a tulip. And <laughs> oh, right. I, feel like, I feel like we're at a similar place where people are spending outrageous dollars and putting in backing companies to an outrageous extent when these companies don't have that much going for them. And there is not that much profitability. There's not really that much, that much in the plans for profitability. And all it's doing is like, it's building the house of cards higher and higher and higher. And these prices are just completely outrageous. And I think that this is true most in the tech, sector but that's also the fastest growing and i'm i'm just a little bit concerned about how much people are drawn to that which is where we were back in the dot-com boom where people were paying and investing in these companies that really had no path to profitability or really an exit of any sort and eventually the house of cards came crumbling down and there was a huge sell-off stock market crashed and um that's, I mean, that's pretty much what it was. Right. Um, yeah, I think you're right that there are some really good learnings we can gain from the dot-com crash. However, I'm a little less pessimistic than you are on this because mm-hmm. I would have completely agreed with you if we had this conversation one year ago, like in 2019. But mm-hmm. I think a lot has changed in the investment community since the fall of WeWork and other similar companies and the Vision Fund and just seeing what's going on in Silicon Valley and Silicon Beach right now, a lot mm-hmm. of companies I know and, and people who I know who work for tech companies are complaining about how every investor right now is focused not on high growth, but on profitability, like actually turning a profit. The mm-hmm. whole SoftBank Vision Fund is starting to be called into question because they were doing exactly what you're saying. They were just pumping money into companies that didn't have a realistic way of generating positive returns in the future. But right Mm -hmm. now, it does seem like a major shift has taken place. And now companies, especially startup companies that are venture backed, 
are focused on turning a profit, even at the expense of high growth rates. So mm. I'm a little less concerned about the same dynamic that was in the dot-com crash. I'm more concerned about the dynamic that's in the 2008 crash, but mm. I still think it's something we need to be wary of. We need to consider the PE ratio. We need to consider which companies mm -hmm. actually have a good thesis for the next 10 years. Like yeah. even though Tesla's burning cash currently, I think they have a good thesis for the next 10 years. But other companies that are also burning cash probably don't have a great thesis for the next 10 years unless they have some serious advantage with the technology they have or just the mm -hmm. way society is changing. So yeah, I mean, the 2000 crisis, I thought you did a really good job summarizing it. One example I'll share just to give an example of what the mindset was in this time is pets.com. So in this era of the dot com, it's like everyone was buying up domains and they'd be like, you won't believe what I have. I have the domain name pets.com. This thing is going to be huge. Look at all these, this market valuation of how much people spend on their pets. We're going to be the next big thing. And meanwhile, the company was actually $147 million in the red the year before it went public. They literally could not get money from investors because they were hemorrhaging so much money. So once they went public, they, they went from $11 a share to $14 a share, massive valuation. And then after the crash, it plummeted to just 22 cents per share. Uh, other contributing factors in the dot-com crash was Y2K. People thought all the computers were going to stop working because they had only been programmed to have you know, so many decimal points, and which yeah. ended up not being an issue. And then 9-11 was also, also contributed to just overarching fears of, oh my God, the world is changing. We're not as safe as we thought we were. Now we need to go do these wars in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. that was sort of the, what was going on in the world in 2000. And mm -hmm. now maybe let's just talk briefly about the, two th or sorry, the Great Depression 1929 and then after we talk about that then let's get into what's different about a situation right now and what can you do to safeguard your assets for a potential future recession so what can we say about the great depression yeah i think the great depression is a similar situation to the dot-com boom i think prices were just kind of a little bit out of hand and there's there are a lot of factors in the Great Depression um, I think there was like geopolitical instability and there's a lot of stuff going on but um, basically there was a point there was a huge sell-off and then following that there was massive unemployment I think there was a number like 13 million people were unemployed within the first couple of years of the Great Depression and um, so you might, I don't have the number, the years right in front of me. Was it like the, was it 31 through 34? Were those 1931 through 1934? Or it was something along those lines. Yeah. So um, 1929 is when the recession started and it really didn't end until the beginning of World War II. Oh, so it was a solid so 10 it was, years. It was a long, and it, it was the yeah. single worst depression as far as what it actually felt like to be a part of this mm -hmm. and 
yeah, so you're right that what started it was a stock market crash that's kind of similar to the dot-com crash where, you know, it was the roaring 20s. Everyone was doing fantastic. Companies were investing. Mm -hmm. They were taking out debt. They were doing putting in R&D. Mm -hmm. But they had gotten so much of a debt burden that they couldn't really handle it. So mm -hmm. they had to cut costs. So a lot of times they would cut employees. So this also was a period where there was really bad income inequality. You know, the people who owned a lot of the railroads and big industries of the day were doing fine, but the workers were not doing fine because the companies were all cutting costs so that they could pay back their debt burden. Mm -hmm. At the same time, this is right around the time of the Dust Bowl. So we had been having really bad agricultural practices that were stripping out the roots and the nutrients topsoil, from the topsoil. Yeah. And it was making it such that the agricultural sector took a big hit. And the agricultural sector was where a lot of people were employed at the time. So we had a really horrible situation where people didn't have a job, they couldn't live off the land, the stock market had crashed, so all of their savings was no longer worth what it used to be worth. And mm -hmm. we essentially couldn't get out of this recession until World War II began. And at that point, 12 million Americans joined the armed forces, and about another 12 million went into the defense industry making bombs and mortars and tanks and whatever else mm -hmm. we need. And that really jump-started the economy. And then we, mm -hmm. you know, obviously won World War II, so things were much better after that. And a lot of people just talk about the post-World War II economy because it really was much different after World War II than it was before mm -hmm. World War II. Yeah. So I think an interesting lesson to take from the three examples we've given is that in every example, times are great. People sort of forgot that it's even possible to have a recession. <laughs> and then because we had ballooned and bitten off a little more than we can chew with our debts and investments and that kind of thing, a reckoning mm -hmm. had to occur. And yeah. that and seems what's a to be bit... similar to what, what's going on now. Yeah, and what's frustrating is if like human nature is not designed to handle these things well, right? So when things are going really well, the first instinct is to say, let's buy more. Like when it's at its right. peak price, you get FOMO. Rather, you don't want to miss out on all the gains. Yeah, so like, so people just this past week when Tesla was at you know, raising 15% day after day for whatever reason, People on the last day were like at nine hundred something dollars. Okay, now is the time to buy it. Like I'm gonna buy a whole bunch now. Right. Next day plummeted twenty percent. Well, I saw it was that a minor correction on Google. If you type in "should I," the first autofill was "should I buy Tesla stock," and yeah. that just shows how there's herd mentality that goes on both when times are good and when times are bad. Yeah, and yeah, it's human nature is just so not prepared to handle a lot of these things and then when things are going down then people want to sell off a bunch when right. in reality if you, you want to buy <laughs> yeah if you want to come out unscathed or at least you know less or better less off of, than you were before yeah even you you don't necessarily wait until the very top to buy maybe you i'm not saying you should sell stuff at the top and none of this should be 
like misconstrued as financial advice. But what I would personally do is have some cash just kind of waiting for something bad to happen and then invest in the, you know, some sort of broad market fund when the stock market crashes and corrects a little bit. Buy low, sell high. It's like the classic advice, but it's amazing how hard hard it is for people to actually follow it because you're everything in you is telling you to do the opposite that's why like contrarians tend to perform the best because they're going exactly (laughs) against the herd mentality yeah so let's talk a little bit about what's different this time around because it's not exactly on point to say that we can take what happened in the great depression or even the dot-com crash of 2008 and say that it's exactly a lot, you know, like what's happening today. So there are a few things that are different than what was occurring in the past that we should take into consideration. One is algorithmic trading. You know, even in 2008, I don't think the algorithms were nearly as robust as they are today in 2020. And this is irrelevant because even if the economy maybe isn't as bad as the algorithm thinks, if the right indicators are fed into the system, like what happened in 2019 when the yield curve inverted, it can create a cascading effect. And we saw this with the 2010 flash crash, where once some indicator you know, triggers a sell in the market, mm-hmm. then other algorithms recognize, oh, they're selling, and then they sell, and then this can just cascade until everything plummets. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but it's totally something that we should consider given how much of trading is algorithmic. It's so mm-hmm. it's it's actually like the majority of trades now are algorithmic. It's not a lot of people like, you know, shouting in the in NASDAQ, yeah. like sell, sell, buy, buy. So mm-hmm. we really need to be need to consider what's feeding into these algorithms and what could trigger a cascading sell off scenario. Mm-hmm. I will point out, though, on the positive note to algorithmic um, trading, and this, you know, algorithmic trading doesn't have to be like a signal-based trading platform. It could be a simple rebalancing thing, like a Wealthfront. And basically, what that does is it takes the human emotion out of it. We were just talking about how bad it is and how bad humans are at making judgment calls and mm-hmm. timing the market. What if you just automate that process of your life? What if you just have an automatic deduction from your checking account? Every, you know, every paycheck goes into a, some sort of wealth rent or betterment account. And then you don't even need to think about it. You don't need to get emotions involved. And you just let it do its thing. Yeah. And, and that is, that's one way that algorithms and automation can be a huge benefit because then your emotions are not getting in the way you you're not controlling it you're not just like deciding to like press a button to buy or right. to sell or to like or calling get your it, broker who has his own set of incentives <laughs> yeah I, I was i was um later than those days i'm glad i never experienced it but <laughs> yeah no but I you're right because algorithms also want to buy low so mm-hmm. this in the same way that an algorithm may create a crash it's also likely that an algorithm would then see the opportunity in a crash, buy low, and then mm-hmm. the economy would rebound on its own. At least that's what we would hope would happen. Mm-hmm. So that's and 
Okay. It depends. It just depends on the algorithm. Like there's all kinds of algorithms. Some are just like, oh, you you deposited some cash. You you know the these asset classes are a little bit out out of balance. Let's say one. Let's say your U.S. stocks has really increased in value, and you wanna you have like a fifty fifty target. Let's say mm-hmm. that you want to go fifty percent U.S. stocks, fifty percent bonds. Let's say the price of the bonds hasn't really changed, but the price of the stocks have really increased in value. So now your actual um, balance of U.S. stocks is like 60-40 in terms of like your total assets. What that will do just naturally is sell high and, and buy the bonds when you rebalance at a lower price. Right. And these these sort of simple rules are really good ways of dealing with automation and introducing automation into investing. And it's like, you don't have to do something really crazy. And I think some people try to overbuild their algorithms and that, that makes them less robust the same way that we like overbuild our economy with all of these crazy derivatives that makes it less robust to um, market corrections. Yeah. So it's not as much about, any one algorithm it's more about the whole ecosystem of algorithms and how that ecosystem interacts with itself mm-hmm. so another interesting difference in today's economy versus past economies is globalization the world economies are so connected and you know you gave the example of if you have an algorithm for 50% US stocks 50% US bonds a lot of investors also have some percentage allocated to international bonds. Mm-hmm. So you have your U.S. index fund, you have your international index fund, and mm-hmm. the good and bad thing. There's good and bad to this. So the good mm-hmm. thing is that if the U.S. economy takes a major hit, you're not totally wiped out because you still have some stake in the international economic pie. The mm-hmm. bad thing is that if the U.S. economy is hit it will probably also affect the international markets because everything Mm -hmm. is so interconnected nowadays. So it's hard to really say how this is going to play out with a future recession, but it's something we should consider. Mm -hmm. Another really, well, I'll say one thing and then I'll say something that's even more interesting. So we already talked about the subprime student loans and how that's the single biggest asset of the U.S. government. That is different now. That was no longer, that wasn't as big of a problem back in 2008 or 2000 or in the past. And as baby boomers live longer, they have more entitlements that come due. The government has promised to pay their entitlements, to pay for their health care once they get over the age of 65. And and, uh, if the government no longer gets the assets it needs from student loans, which is its single biggest asset, then they may not be able to pay the entitlements and that could create a recession. And this Mm -hmm. may become more and more likely if baby boomers continue to live longer and if students are not as able to pay back their loans. And unfortunately, both of those, well, it's good that baby boomers are living longer, but financially (laughs) it makes it difficult. Yeah. The other important difference, I think, which is an underrated difference in my perspective, is the we are living in the post-truth era today. And this is also good and bad. So in every past recession, we've pretty much agreed on the facts, right? 
We know mm-hmm. what the rates are. We know how well the economy is doing. That's no longer the case. We're now in this post-truth era where, you know, Trump can say, oh, yeah, the economy is great. Everything's going fine. Invest, invest. Like, things are great. And a lot of people will believe him. And it's kind of a good thing because it, he, for whatever reason, Trump has been great for the economy. Like, you can't really argue against that. I mean, of course, income inequality is a problem and there are some serious other problems. But if you just look at the top line metrics like GDP and unemployment and stuff like that, things have been pretty good under Trump. And part of it's that he's just able to make a lot of people feel confident, even when the underlying numbers maybe aren't don't warrant that same confidence. And we have some part of the population that believe one set of facts based on their ideological and political affiliations. And then we have another part of the population that believes a completely different set of facts. So my concern is what happens once we get into an, once like we have someone in the presidency who's not Trump, who's maybe more of a realist and maybe starts to talk out about, oh, there actually is a really big problem with how much debt the U.S. has and there is a big problem with how students are unable to pay back their loans and there is a big problem with our entitlement spending and not being able to pay for social security for all these aging baby boomers. That reality check may create a recession when people are like, oh shit, we're no longer in this reality distortion field. We actually have to pay the bill now and then everyone just leaves the the brunch spot because no one wants to be stuck with the bill. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, this is yeah. like, a, no one, I've never heard anyone really talk about this related to the recession, but it does seem worth noting. Yeah, and you mentioned at the beginning um, that really the economy is driven from human nature and human behavior. Ultimately, that's, you know, that that is what drives supply and demand. And if people and their behavior doesn't really depend on what the truth is, then anything can happen i guess but but that just makes the the actual that makes the fragility of the economy way more noticeable from those willing to look Mm -hmm. um and you know see the facts for what they are um so yeah i'm i'm very curious to see what happens and just like one recent example of globalization just something that happened within the past couple of weeks is the stock market responding to coronavirus mm-hmm. in China? Like, there's yeah. there have been some instances in the U.S. But yeah, the Chinese stock market dropped by ten percent after the mm-hmm. coronavirus scare. Mm-hmm. But even the U.S. stock market dropped. I don't know. It was a couple percent at least, mm-hmm. um, just because people in China were getting the virus, and there's you know some sort of uncertainty of what's going on with that situation and yeah there's like anything that happens around the world that could somehow lead to a decrease in spending and a decrease in production is going to affect prices and eventually people are going to realize maybe maybe we should not be spending this much money and even if even if the correction is not followed by a recession i i really think that there's a strong possibility well, let's maybe we yeah. get into the scenarios, <laughs> right? Um, but I think there is. Well, a let's let's talk about because you already got into sort of one of the triggers. Let's mm-hmm. talk about a few triggers that could happen. So, 
a pandemic is one and it could even oh, yeah. be the coronavirus because from what i've read from researchers it's not like we've already gone through the worst of the coronavirus it's likely that in the coming months it'll keep getting worse and who knows how bad it'll get but we're in the beginning stages of the virus being spread i don't know how bad it'll be it might just be more the sky is falling type of mentality where it gets overblown by the media because it gets a lot of clicks but it could also be bad obviously war could trigger a recession anything that would make people freak out psychologically could trigger a recession so it could also be some major natural disaster um anything that causes panic um yep so i guess like one thing I want to oh, – sorry, go ahead. You're gonna... Well, I was just going to say, and we've talked a lot in recent episodes about how stuff like that is likely. Let's talk about the effects of climate change. Let's talk about the effects of our agricultural practices. Let's, you know, right. There's so many things that could happen. Any of the scenarios we've talked about that are not positive could lead to panic. Right. And you know, what happens when – um, mass automation takes over and there is no safety net in place. That's right. panic. Like that, there, there are potentially people that are going to, well, unemployment rate could skyrocket. Yeah. And that's something that could lead to. All right. Well, let's save panic. a little bit of this for yeah. the scenarios because okay. <laughs> you're on a good train. The last thing I want to talk about before we get into the future scenarios is what people listening to this podcast can do to safeguard themselves against a financial crisis. Now, one thing I'll say right off the bat, we talked about a lot of this in the future of wealth, is you can buy gold and silver. And it's super interesting when you look at the value of gold and silver compared to the value of the US dollar or the yen or the euro Mm -hmm. or any other currency where gold is just flat pretty much because you're always, you know, the value of gold hasn't really changed that much throughout human history. There's only so much of it going around and it gets traded around, but the underlying value has been fairly constant and Mm -hmm. every other currency has just plummeted with relative to the price of gold. And it's also worth noting that never in history has a currency kept its value indefinitely. Every currency in human history has eventually gone to zero. Will the US dollar be the first currency ever to not go to zero? Maybe. Would you bet on it? I don't know. Depends on the time horizon, right. I guess. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not betting that in the next 10 years or maybe even 100 years it'll go to zero, but if I had to bet in, if it will go to zero in the next thousand years, I would bet that it's more likely to go to zero in the next thousand years than not. And then the question is just, when is it going to go to zero? And I don't want I'm not trying to freak people out, but it's worth noting that if you hold something like gold, I don't consider it an investment. I don't expect to get a return on gold and sell it one day, even though you can do that. I think of it more as a hedge where you you've you uh, you know you have this money in the bank and you know that if there's runaway inflation all your savings are going to be worthless mm-hmm. or worth way less than they were 
when you were planning out your retirement, for instance. Mm-hmm. You had it all in cash somewhere yeah. or something. Or in the bank, or it doesn't matter. It's like mm-hmm. there can be runaway inflation. But if you have a if you have at least, let's say, ten percent of your net worth in gold and silver, you're in a much better position because that's gonna hold in value no matter what. Mm-hmm. It's gonna it's been around before the first human beings walked on planet Earth. These are elements on the elementary table. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be around long after humans are gone. And it's useful not only because it's pretty and shiny and can be made into jewelry. It's also valuable, especially silver, in the computing and electronics industry, in the medical and pharmaceutical industry, with purification and, and uh, you know different industrial processes. So it's mm-hmm. a real raw material that holds its value. It's sort of like if you had like acres of corn or something. It's just like a resource that will hold its value over time, except you can store it in a small amount of space because, you know, an ounce of gold is worth a lot rather than having like acres and acres of corn and cows or whatever other raw materials you're keeping. Mm -hmm. So I would say the number one thing anyone listening to this podcast should do just from what I'm, I mean, I'm not saying it's a financial recommendation, but just what I personally have chosen to do is to keep at least 10% of my assets in gold and silver, real physical gold and silver, not ETFs or anything like that at any given time. Hmm. So one, so I'm just trying to think of, um, you know, something that could lead to, you know, something bad. So I don't know if you've, um, Alchemy. If you know much about like, <laughs> yeah, alchemy. Yeah, no, but asteroid or like um, space mining. Right. Uh, right now, there's there's a lot of um, there's like pretty much a very limited supply on Earth. So the supply is limited. Prices are a little bit higher. I wonder what would happen if we go to the moon or we go to Mars or we go to some asteroid and there's a complete abundance of gold. What does that do? Right. Um, I, that's probably like way further out and probably doesn't affect, you know, any sort of recommendation of having gold, but it is something. No, to that's at least, good to point out. Yeah. To, the you know, like there go way up. Yeah. There like nothing, nothing in finance, nothing in the economy is going to stay static forever. And there are some that have staying power. It seems like gold tends to have staying power. It seems like some of these other things have staying power. But, you know, it is worth pointing out that it's not necessarily an end-all, be-all. Like, the, right. there's to, like, to really be recession-proof, there's, like, you have to have a whole system of things to kind of combat that. Maybe some of that is, you know, if you're worried about a correction, maybe you do have a little bit of cash that wait that, and you're waiting for, you know, a price to plummet. And I'm not talking about individual stocks. I don't recommend anybody without extensive experience picking individual stocks, but like just general broad market stuff, doing something that Jack Bogle from Vanguard mm-hmm. said and just like just invest in broad market index funds investing, saving, all of these things will help and making sure that you're hedged against, you know, a downturn and prepared to make more money when there is a downturn. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's that a really good just... point. And that, that's why I, I don't recommend 100% of your assets in gold and silver. <laughs> I'm just saying yeah, yeah. have at least 10%. Like I think 10 yeah, to 20% yeah. even is a good is yeah. a good hedge, just given where we are right now and the indicators we've seen. But you're right. You also want to be diversified with some broad index funds, some bonds. And mm -hmm. I think really another point that's crucial is with your own career, if you've sort of chosen yourself and you have a business that people are going to want to use that business's services, no matter what the economic conditions are, you're in a much better position than if you work for someone who may end up firing you if economic conditions are hard, especially if it's not exactly what you want to be doing anyways. Like I would say, if you are already doing what you want to do with your life, even if you weren't getting paid, then you're way better, you're further along than someone who's currently getting paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, but they hate their job and they could easily be fired at, you know, if economic conditions are hard and then, yeah. you know, they might not have the easiest time getting another job if the economy is also in a recession. So, mm -hmm. and part of that could be just like if you have a side hustle or something that gives you a little bit of, of uh, stability, like it, it's interesting that in past recessions, like yoga and meditation and self-care industries actually grew during recessions because people were like, they really needed that. Um, so anything in that industry may be a good move. Like even if you have like a, like, I don't know, a local barbershop, then you just like cut people's hair in your living room and or something. Like, <laughs> I don't know, just businesses like that. There's something people will always need and they're more resilient. They tend to be more resilient than if you like work for some big company, you're really expensive to the company you may be replaceable, especially as technology increases, and you really don't have a backup plan for what would happen if you get fired. So that's the other piece of recommendation I would give. Yeah, and I would, I'll add one more thing to that before getting into the scenarios, and that is you don't even need to start a business necessarily because sometimes entrepreneurship, like not everyone necessarily needs to be an entrepreneur, right. but what people do need to make sure they do is not become complacent with their skills and just general knowledge of how the world works. If you as an individual keep growing and keep learning new things, then you are more desirable in any sort of workplace, whether that's starting mm -hmm. your own thing or being hired at a company even in the midst of a downturn. If you position yourself in a way that you know a lot more and you're just a higher skilled person than you know the next guy that's going to help that is going to help you be resist you know recession proof and that can help yeah. you if you want a job you can have a job even in a recession like you're not you wouldn't be one of those people that get laid off in a recession if you are mm -hmm. irreplaceable and you have enough skills so that you know that's kind of the other side of the same coin i would say yeah that's great yeah, and it's probably not a good time to make any big investments right now or like <laughs> financial investments or I wouldn't get into major debt right now. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would just like be a little more conservative in the next few years as well. Yeah, I think it 
really well actually you know what? let's just get let's into, get into the scenarios. future scenarios <laughs> all right justin what is the worst case scenario for the future of recessions worst case scenario yeah um in my mind it's my worst case is uh not good um obviously but really what i think would be my version of the worst case scenario is we have some sort of economic downturn in the next handful of years. But I think my worst case scenario is more about how we respond to that recession. And what I'm worried about and what I think would be pretty catastrophic is we don't have any safeguards in place for people to respond Um, and what I'm most worried about is how companies respond and how I think companies could respond is they focus entirely on automation, totally get the human out of the picture because you can easily scale up and scale down technology and robots and computers if you need to. And what would happen is when the economy starts to recover, jobs and people, basically jobs um, don't continue. Um, let me they don't rise that. accordingly. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So like people are uh, not replacing, you know, their previous jobs. They're just kind of out of work because mm-hmm. everything's been automated away. And this could lead to even more, you know, you know, it could lead to really bad situations personally, like if you can't afford to put food on the table, that could lead to, Mm -hmm. in some countries, that could lead to famine, that could lead to a lot of situations that we've seen. It could lead to a situation similar to the Great Depression, which was Mm -hmm. the greatest economic downturn in US history. And I worry that the response of companies and the government could lead to a similar or worse situation to that. And then what happens even you know beyond that is income inequality rises to unimaginable extents because the people that are in charge of these companies with all of the automation are making all of the money and there are no there aren't even that many employees to be you know reaping the benefits of a rising stock price mm-hmm. it's completely in the hands of companies and maybe that would be mass privatization of these companies like they don't need the public they don't need to have public companies on a stock market to rise and fall maybe it's safer for these companies to not be at the whims of like the turmoil of the economy the same way that uh elon musk said he would just prefer tesla to be private sometime Mm -hmm. early in uh, 2019 um so that could happen and i just i think if that happens, then the average person can't benefit from that company being public and income inequality gets to probably the worst levels we could imagine. And, you know, it's just a cascading effect, um, depending on how we respond. And maybe if it happens before the technology is there for, you know, mass automation, then we would be fine. But if it's four or five years down the road and our automation is way better, then that might be how companies respond and that could lead to that sort of situation. Yeah. Yeah. My worst case scenario is worrisome because 
many of the reputable people who I follow are really worried about it. And that worries me because they know a hell of a lot more about our economy and what drives mm -hmm. it than I do. So the two people who I defer to the most with these sort of predictions are Robert Kiyosaki and uh, Ray Dalio. And Robert Kiyosaki, he pretty much predicted the last recession, the 2008 crisis. And he's just a really smart investor and, and author. He wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad, he wrote Fake. And what he says is that, you know, he's a surfer who grew up in Hawaii and he looks a lot at like the cycles of the stock market and they tend to sort of be similar to the cycles that occur in nature. Like, I think there's a term for it, like a three point something. But basically what he's been talking about is that, you know, like any big surf set, you have one wave and then the second wave is even bigger and then the third wave is biggest of all and then there's a major crash. And from his perspective, it looks like there was a big first wave with the dot-com crash, a big second wave with the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis. And then we are building up to the big third wave, which could be not only a recession, but an actual depression, similar to what you said, like it would be more like mm -hmm. the Great Depression. And he's worried because a lot of the financials of the way the U.S. government has been operating since 1971, when Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, have been really bad practices. And mm -hmm. we've been devaluing our currency ever since we took it off the gold standard. And we've just been pumping money into the system and creating financial derivatives and mortgage-backed securities and all of these, what Warren Buffett calls financial weapons of mass destruction, right? That There's another expert that we should think <laughs> that we should listen to, right? Yeah. And this could create a situation that I think you did a really good job describing, which the stock market crashes, people's savings get wiped out, and only the people who have money-making machines, whether that's a business or it's an investment arm or it's something that prints them money, essentially, those people will be fine. But all the people that are getting paid, that rely on a paycheck from someone, whether it's the government or a company, those people are going to be seriously in trouble. And income inequality is one of the most worrying aspects of this, because we saw similar income inequality right before the Great Depression. And it's really hard to bolster an economy when the average person just doesn't have any spending power. So I'm concerned about what Robert Kiyosaki is saying and Warren Buffett is saying. I'm also concerned about what Ray Dalio is saying. He's one of the richest and, and most knowledgeable investors on the face of the earth. And he's been saying that we are getting into a serious crisis and we may not be able to fix it in the same way that we fixed previous crises. And part of that's because insurance rates have been so low, or sorry, interest rates have been so low that we're not going to be able to respond with lower interest rates. And unless we do something to reallocate some of the wealth to the people on the bottom quartile, uh, you know, quintiles, mm -hmm. then it's going to be really hard for the economy as a whole to rebound. Mm -hmm. So uh, my worst case scenario, just to put a, a pin on it, is runaway inflation 
it could also be deflation, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like from what I've read from Ray Dalio's work that it's easier to deal with deflation because deflation is basically a really strong U.S. dollar and it's so strong and it's worth more tomorrow than it's worth today. So everyone's just holding on to their money. No one wants to spend it because it's growing in value. It's kind of similar to like when Bitcoin, the value of Bitcoin was just going up and up and up. It's like no one wanted to actually spend their Bitcoin on like a coffee at Starbucks because <laughs> you're an idiot if you do that. The value is just going to go way up tomorrow. So that's yeah. like what a deflationary scenario looks like. But with the U.S. dollar, you could, the government can just print way more money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are obviously bad side effects to that, but it's something that we have more of an ability to get ourselves out of than a runaway inflation scenario, which is my personal worst case scenario, because that would mean everyone who's been saving for their retirement, you know, they got all this money in their savings account that they're planning on spending for the rest of their life. If that gets, if the value of that money seriously declines, then a lot of people won't be able to pay for their medical expenses, for their food, for their housing. They'll go into a default that the average person will be so much worse off. And the people who are you know, printing the money will be fine. But anyways, that's my worst case scenario, a runaway mm-hmm. inflation scenario. And it's not necessarily my most likely. So we'll you know, have some more optimism in the minutes to come. <laughs> but that's some, some of what I'm really concerned about personally. Yeah. What do you think about the best case scenario then? Best case scenario. My best case scenario is, well, two things. One is maybe a recession won't happen. That may be a little bit too optimistic, but let's explore Mm. this for a second. So Mm. many proponents of modern monetary theory seem to believe that, oh, it doesn't really matter that we have massive deficits and debt that we can't pay back because we're in the modern world now of digital currency. And, you you know, it's not like anyone actually has like piles of cash. It's really just numbers and digits on a screen. And this is very different than in the past. And because of this new paradigm, we really shouldn't be as worried about running out of money or runs on the bank or runaway inflation or Pretty much as long as inflation is at normal levels, we're pretty much okay no matter how much debt we have. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with these modern monetary theorists, but Mm -hmm. it is worth noting that there are some people who have spent a lot of time researching this that believe that. So I guess that's my best, best case scenario. My second best case scenario, which maybe is a little more realistic, is we do have a recession but it's not as bad as we think and it will actually make us wiser and the economy more robust in the long run. Now, part of Mm. why I'm actually a little bit optimistic and think this isn't such a crazy scenario is that, like I said, with the venture world, there are already smart people who are expecting a recession and they're already taking steps to counteract the recession, which may make the recession not as bad as it would be otherwise. There is so much idle wealth sitting around in the economy that if the economy does start to go negative, then so many investors would want to buy up those assets. So that may actually counteract how bad it is and it may shorten the duration 
of the recession. So that's sort of my like second best scenario. And if that does happen, I believe we may end up being in a much better long term position if we make changes like, huh, maybe we should actually focus on having a surplus for once rather than always going into debt every single year with the U.S. government. Maybe we should Mm -hmm. actually invest in the healthcare and education of our citizens rather than making our citizens go into tremendous debt for their education and health care. Maybe we should stop this crazy monetary system where we're just pumping tons and tons of money into the system and instead go to something where there's actual verified transactions on the blockchain. I'm not saying necessarily that Bitcoin or any one cryptocurrency is going to win out. But if we moved to a blockchain system, there wouldn't be this game of, you know, mirror smoke and mirrors of like you don't really know how much money's worth because there's all of these secret players pumping money in and basically deciding what the value of things are you would just have real transactions that are verifiable on the blockchain which is just Mm -hmm. a more robust way to have a a real system that that would be more similar to like having our money back on the gold gold uh you know back on the gold not 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 Mm -hmm. just a fiat currency so yeah, that's my best case. I'm interested to hear yours. Yeah, you actually touched on a couple that were very similar to mine. Obviously, the number one best case is there is no recession, right? Like we can just continue to grow in perpetuity. Um, I don't think that's you know one that's sort of a boring best case, but also <laughs> it's just good forever. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, but but really the best case that I was thinking about is one that's sort of the opposite response to a recession as what I was describing in the best case or in the worst case. So in the best case, maybe the response is yes, we learn, like you were saying, we learn how to really change the economy to work for us. But I think even more than that, we have a system in place where people can actually you know, they can take some time off, they can re-educate themselves, they can do whatever it is they need to do to be happier as people. And I think if in the best case, if we have a situation and a system in place where people can do that, then we might get to the point where the whole economy changes. Like we've talked about how this idea of having jobs and all of this stuff might be an antiquated idea if there is no actual reason for people to be getting jobs. Mm-hmm. And if, if people don't need to have bullshit jobs and people can spend their time doing what they want to do, then that might be a way to respond to the recession. And if we had something in place and we had a UBI of some sort mm-hmm. in place, yeah. then people... we might not go back to the old way of doing things. And in the best case, we don't go back to the old way of doing things. And the entire economy changes to kind of work around the people rather than having the people work for the system, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think that's sort of, yeah, that's what I think is the best case, is we sort of flip the economy and um, do really flip the idea of what it means to work. And mm-hmm. now people focus on what it means to be happy. And like, we can kind of get to the next phase of 
enlightenment and we can, you know, we can yeah. just be, we can just be better as a society and as humans. And, you know, maybe, maybe that looks more like people go into knowledge work a little bit more. Right. People focus more on education for a longer period of time. Well, there's a phrase that, where they say we need to free the scholar to pursue his studies. And it's like, yeah. cause so often people just, they, they have a natural drive that they want to solve this problem or pursue this area of study but they mm. also have to calculate will this make enough money that i can put food on the table pay for my kids pay for my health care so if you take those out of the equation then you have a lot of people just pursuing what they want and we've never really tried a bottom-up approach solution to a recession where you actually give money to the people who then are way more likely to spend that money which bolsters the whole economy so I think mm -hmm. you're right. If we respond with a bottom-up approach through UBI and through investing mm -hmm. in healthcare and education, I think the economy and just life in general could be much better off in the future mm -hmm. than even it is right now in the, like, quote, boom times. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that summarizes what I was thinking pretty well. Um, what do you think for the likely case, then? Most likely scenario. My likely scenario is that we will undergo a recession in the next five years. I would be really surprised if by 2025, things were still more or less, you know, climbing up and to the right. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say how likely it is that it'll happen in the next year. You know, some of the indicators show like a 30 to 40% chance that it'll happen in 2020. Ray Dalio personally went on record saying he thinks the likelihood is 25% chance we will have a recession in 2020. Now, that means most likely we won't have a recession in 2020. But mm. if things are still going up in 2020, then the likelihood it'll happen in 2021 is probably like 35% or something. Mm -hmm. So I think in the next five years, we will undergo a recession. I think it will change policies, especially when we consider the fact that Andrew Yang and UBI already had some decent traction in this election when times are good. I imagine they will have much more traction with those types of ideas when times are bad. So I'm optimistic about the long term outlook for the economy because I think we can get to that more enlightened stage, but it also is likely to be fairly painful. Um, you know, in the transitionary period. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle as far as like best and worst case as far as what it's like to actually live in the recession because it does seem like there's just so much idle money waiting for good investments that I can't imagine it would go on for that long where the market keeps declining, keeps declining before the rich people start buying back up those low-priced assets. So... Mm -hmm. If you're listening to this, I would say don't freak out that something horrible is going to happen tomorrow. Like I'm not saying anyone should sell their stock right away or, you know, put all their money into gold and silver. But I would start making some thoughtful chess moves like I would start thinking about setting aside some money each month to invest in gold and silver. My personal philosophy with stocks is that I take the Warren Buffett approach where I buy stocks with the intent never to sell them. 
And it's because I only buy stocks that I really believe in the long-term thesis of the company. So I didn't like sell Tesla right when it spiked way up, even though I know a lot of people did. My, my philosophy is I'm just going to keep Tesla forever. I mean, I may need to sell stock at some point or other to pay for an expense, but I'm not going to mm -hmm. do it because I think the price is going this way or that way. I'm more mm -hmm. making bets on the long-term viability of Tesla, of Amazon, of Apple, of whatever companies mm -hmm. I happen to believe in. And because I know tech and I work in tech, those are where a lot of my assets are. So I would also say like, you know, think about what you care about, what you know, what you feel like, where you feel like you maybe have a little edge as far as your information and understanding of markets, uh, mm. rather than always deferring to experts. And uh, yeah, so I think like, just try to be diversified, try to get some money in gold and silver, don't make any big bets right now, maybe have a plan for okay, if there is a recession, here's my strategy, I'm going to wait until this happens. And at that point, I'm going to invest in real estate in these markets, because I've always felt like these markets have major opportunity for growth. And, you know, I would just think about the long term and really try to keep your emotions in check and just make thoughtful decisions for the future. Yeah, I think that's really good. Um, my likely case is it's somewhat political, actually, and I'm I'm a little bit so I think in the in a likely case, it's possible that we I think we're going to be fine, basically, while I think the or at least I think the um, stock market will continue to boom. I'm not, you know, leaving personal opinions about the presidency out of it, but the stock market is doing well right now mm -hmm. under Trump. And what I think could happen and what I think might even be it, it could even be a long-term plan of people behind the scenes, not to get super conspiracy, <laughs> you know, conspiracy theorists, but let's say someone like Bernie Sanders gets elected. I think, I think the stock market will absolutely plummet. Like almost, you know, day one, as soon as the results are announced, the stock market will probably plummet if Bernie Sanders gets elected. But what I think that does unfortunately, is it leads to a situation where people for the next 50 to 100 years never have any trust in someone like that again, because, oh, this person is associated with a stock crash. And I think the timing of all of these things matter, the same way the timing of the legalization or, Ill, or the criminalization of weed hurt things for the rest, you know, for 30, 40, 50 years same way with psychedelics like all of these little correlations that happen have effects in the long term mm -hmm. like 50 to 100 years and what i worry is there will be a recession but i worry about when that recession happens mm -hmm. does that recession happen when bernie sanders is the president you think or it'll be the same Andrew for Elizabeth Yang Warren? Is the president? yeah probably she mm -hmm. had she's just as hawkish on you know the billionaires and What's even worse is I think she's like, well, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of Elizabeth Warren. Um, like, I think her policies are a little bit misguided in terms of like the economy. But um, if I think the timing of all of this matters and that if yeah. there is a stock market crash when 
there is a democratic president, especially one that is a little bit more humanitarian, it's going to take forever for some sort of change to happen again. And then that's going to lead to something. I'm more pessimistic about the future of um, recessions, but <laughs> yeah, I, I think it. I mean, it does I seem we'll like well. it does seem like like Trump has done so many crazy things that he's almost desensitized us to any major shocks to the system. So it's like, oh, the coronavirus, like, oh, this is just a new thing this week. Like, whereas <laughs> if it happened under like Obama or something, it'd be like so much more dire because things were just more normal. There wasn't as much like interesting, crazy news out there. So for better or for worse, and you know, whatever you think of Trump, it does seem like he has this reality distortion field that may actually be good for markets for whatever reason. And I mm -hmm. think your insight is a good one, which is that once we have someone who speaks more to the problems than to just how great everything is with the economy, it may become a self-fulfilling promise and it, a self-fulfilling prophecy, and it may make people fight back against the very changes that need to happen to have good, long-term, mm -hmm. sustainable economics, things that are very much needed, like you know, investing in education, healthcare, and mm -hmm. potentially a universal basic income solution. Yeah, I mean it's it's almost always the situation that there has to be some pain if we want to like grow and like transcend where we are. But I worry that the pain will cause people to delay that growth or just totally halt the growth. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what I'm worried about even in the likely case. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you everyone for listening. We will check back in if and when a recession does occur, although we certainly are not hoping for one. Uh, what we are hoping for is that you guys all make the right decisions for yourselves and your future, and that we can all be one step ahead of the game. So, this has been a future of recessions, and we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is